He was the man who was a gangster before gangsters existed. And with a finger in every pie, he was almost invincible. He had a lot of connections in the baking industry. He had a lot of connections with politicians. He was extremely influential with Tammany Hall, a major political organization. Arnold Rothstein was known as The Brain for his skills with numbers and for knowing how to find a good business venture. He was not a crude or violent person who could not make his way in the upper world. He was the kind of man who had the skills to be successful in the upper world. He'd probably have a hedge fund today. He became infamous for creating one of the biggest sports scandals in history and for rubbing shoulders with the upper crust. The White Sox players were unhappy because their owner, Charles Comiskey, was a cheapskate. So what happened was Rothstein heard that there could be big dough for the players if they double-cross Kaminsky. But even the most capable businessman can't run a business alone. And if his lackeys went down, he was going to go down with them. Meyer Lansky and his business partner, Jimmy Alo, singled out Dutch Schultz as a uniquely bad guy. It's interesting that in the world of bad guys, there was actually a spectrum. And Schultz was viewed as the baddest of the bad. This is Mafia. Arnold Rothstein was offered a position on Wall Street when he was still a relatively young man, very early in the game. A $25,000 a year brokerage position with $25,000 was a lot of dough and you could live very comfortably on that. And he turned it down because it just wasn't for him. It wasn't quite as thrilling. It wasn't quite as lucrative. And he liked the nightlife, I think. He liked being able to shift between this person and that person and operate on his own to be his own boss and to create his own his own lifestyle um, like a character, like a Moriarty out of a Sherlock Holmes story. Unlike a lot of other criminals, Arnold Rothstein was not born into a life of poverty. His parents were rich, and he and his brother received an excellent education. But though his brother excelled at schooling, Rothstein was not interested. Bernard Whalen is the author of Undisclosed Files of the Police. Well, Ar- Arnold Rothstein, he was a uh, Jewish uh, gambler, uh, made his fortune in the late teens, early 20s. As a kid, he had a real uh, affinity for numbers and uh, even said when he was growing up that he never uh, gambled with somebody that he knew he could not beat. So uh, he took that talent and became a gambler. And uh, that was in the days of the uh, when the Jewish people were more of the organized crime than the Italians who were subsequently going to come along. Instead of a straight life working in finance, Rothstein made an early fortune gambling on anything and everything. Cards, horses, even election results. Lana Guggenheim is an educator at the Museum of the American Gangster. Uh, He was definitely the problem child in his family, possibly because he wanted attention and his studious brother got it. And according to uh, one one of the biographies, he said, I don't know when I started gambling, I've always been doing it. Rothstein was a man who knew how to make his own luck. He knew not to rely on odds alone. 
His connections ran deep, and he would pay for good information. His nickname, the one he preferred, was The Brain. And the reason is he thought of himself very to be a very bright guy, and uh, the money he made uh, illegally certainly made that true. He was The Brain. He also had another uh, nickname people called him, even his own lawyer, and that was He was a gray rat waiting for his piece of the cheese. By 1912, before his 30th birthday, Rothstein had become a self-made millionaire. And this, in turn, made him even more wealthy. He began to lend out money to other gamblers, earning himself his other nickname, the Big Bankroll. David Petrusia is a Rothstein biographer. He moves in gambling circles. In gambling circles, there's winners, there's losers. And when the losers need ready cash to tide them over, Arnold Rothstein will be carrying as much as $100,000 in cash on his person. And he will let you have that money, no questions asked. But the catch is there may be as much as a 20% interest as, as needed. Oh boy. And he was smart enough not to have all of his eggs in one basket especially when it came to gambling. The rumor was that he fixed games, but he remained well-respected and well-liked. Rothstein loves money. He loves gambling. He loves the thrill of gambling. And he loves being just a little or a lot smarter than everyone else. Money motivates Arnold Rothstein above everything else. But so does the thrill of gambling, whether you're going to win or lose. And also, it's a question of egotism with Arnold Rothstein. He's going to be smarter than everyone else around him. He is going to pull the fast one, either at the racetrack or at the gambling house, to get the extra odds, the edge. Thomas Rapetto is the author of American Mafia. He was not a crude or violent person who could not make his way in the upper world. He was the kind of man who had the skills to be successful in the upper world. He'd probably have a hedge fund today. Rothstein's connections went so deep, he could get away with almost anything. January, 1919. Four floors above the cold city streets, a game of dice was in full swing. As Rothstein confidently placed a bet, there were voices outside the apartment and the sound of a group of people running up the stairs. Gambling is a dangerous business, not only in terms of what you might lose, but also what you might lose to robbers along the way or during the game when they know a game is in progress. Arnold Rothstein had been robbed in 1918 at the St. Francis Hotel, and he was very nervous about that. Rothstein fired on the door and heard three bodies slump to the ground outside. So that when in January 1919, he hears a series of raps on the door when there's another high-stakes game going on. He reacts, and he reacts quickly, instantly, and violently. He fires three shots through a heavy wooden door. There was a lot of raids, a lot of gambling establishments. When the uh, uh, prohibition comes, there's over 100,000 bars in New York City. So 
with closing these places up, uh, there's a lot of raids. Not armed robbers, not brigands, not outlaws, not gangsters, but three New York City police detectives. But the intruders were no thieves. Rothstein had just shot three cops. Though their wounds weren't fatal, no one gets away with shooting cops. He would never have shot the detectives. But he shot thinking they were hold-up men. Afterward, he may, they weren't badly wounded. It is frowned on that you are not supposed to shoot cops when they are endeavoring to break up an illegal poker game. Nobody got away with this, except perhaps Arnold Rothstein. But Arnold Rothstein, even then, is so powerful. He beats the rap of the poker game, and he beats the rap of shooting three cops. How does he do it? David Petruja says the key was in having friends on both sides of the door. Rothstein had friends in the courthouse, and the gamblers all pretended not to have even seen a gun being shot. They could not see anything. They could not even remember a shot being fired. He provides the bail. A friend of Rothstein's dismisses charges against them. No one can testify against Arnold Rothstein. And then what happens is a cop who is on the other side of that door makes trouble for Arnold Rothstein. Rothstein doesn't go to jail, does not get indicted, does not lose his pistol permit, But the cop who causes trouble for Arnold Rothstein finds himself essentially removed from the force, had his pay suspended, and has to spend years getting it back. That is power, and that is the power that Arnold Rothstein had over the system in New York. Well, witnesses, uh, particularly back then, uh, could easily be bought off. Uh, So money was paid. If they didn't agree to not talk. There was other ways to silence them, and that was quite frequent uh, with the mob. That was one of their biggest uh, uh, witnesses recant or witnesses disappear. That was one of the hardest things that the prosecutors uh, back then, and still to this day, face. Uh, It's easy initially for a witness to tell the police what happened. In between going to that trial, somebody reaches out to him and says, hey, if you talk on this, take the stand and say that, I'm going to kill you. You're going to be dead. Your family's going to be dead. You agree not to, hey, here's some money. The guy weighs odds, says, you know what? I'm not going to talk, or I'm just going to have a bad memory, or I'm going to totally, totally contradict what I told the police at that point. And that's what happened. So the number of witnesses uh, doesn't necessarily mean you have a good case. The quality of the witness is the most important thing. And uh, at that time, Rothstein was a very powerful man, and few people wanted to go against him. It took a special kind of man to walk away from an assault on the cops, especially one that was in the midst of an illegal gambling den. But Rothstein was an exception. Eric Desenhall is the author of The Devil Himself. But it's captured in the American identity, the idea that being a gangster, that it's possible to be very powerful and buck the system and thumb your nose at authority and actually get away with it. When the truth is you probably can't, but it's a wonderful, very deep American fantasy. Americans 
love our gangsters and outlaws, and we love them because we believe they get away with it. This was only the start of Rothstein's career. Soon, he set his sights on fixing America's favorite pastime and gaining everlasting notoriety. In 1919, the Baseball World Series was held in Cincinnati, with the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago White Sox playing for the championship. The White Sox were the favorites and considered one of the best teams in the nation, so the odds on their rivals was high. Selwyn Rabb is the author of Five Families. In the 1919 World Series, the big favorites, and supposedly the best team in America, was the Chicago White Sox. So the odds were like two to one, three to one, that the Reds would win the series. Now you have to bet on the entire series before it starts. Then you can bet on individual games. Rothstein allegedly saw an opportunity to fix the game, putting the odds in his favor. He had a lead that the Sox players were not being paid what they were worth. The White Sox players were unhappy because their owner, Charles Comiskey, was a cheapskate and didn't want to pay them. I mean, on salaries. In those days, they didn't have a collective union. They didn't have any bargaining rights. So they were getting peanuts. So what happened was Rothstein heard that one of his, somebody he knew, had a connection to White Sox players. And he sent the word that there could be big dough to the players if they double-crossed Kaminsky, took a bribe, and blew the World Series. And some of these players thought this was a way of revenge, retaliation for Kaminsky underpaying them. And that was the way Rothstein, through intermediaries, got to the White Sox players. With the players on board, Rothstein went about placing the bets, although not by himself. David Petruja says he worked through boxer Abe Attell, a gambler himself, and other networks as to not rouse suspicion. When Arnold Rothstein is about to make a killing, whether it's at the racetrack or fixing a World Series, he cannot simply go up to some bookmaker somewhere and say, here's $300,000, here's $500,000 on so-and-so, because people are going to smell a rat. So whether it's at the racetrack or whether it's fixing the World Series, he cannot be seen placing too much money on one horse, one team, and he will have agents, they're called commissioners, betting commissioners, secretly placing his money down for him. So Rothstein went in, you know, by using money and using fronts to go around and lay off, lay bets, make bets with different bookies throughout the country. And he was getting two to one or three to one by uh, wagering that he would, the Reds would win. So he cashed in later, although there wasn't directly, he would use fronts, different people who would, who would actually lay the bets, make the bets. So it was a, it was a coup. I mean, uh, who doesn't want to win a two-to-one or three-to-one bet? If you know it's fixed. But fixing an entire series of baseball games wasn't as simple as loading dice or doping a horse. It was a challenge on a much larger scale. First of all, Rothstein had to provide the money to the bookies. A lot of money. He has the money 
to provide $80,000 to these ball players to fix the series. He also has the money to profit from fixing a World Series. But it, because this is an operation that requires huge amounts of cash. What good is fixing a World Series if you do not have the money to lay down the bets? It's a pretty expensive academic exercise for gamblers. And he had to keep everyone on board for at least five games. At first, it looked like his plan was working. The White Sox lost the first two games to give the Reds a series lead. They won game three as to not be suspicious. But by game five, the players were angry. Rothstein's deal was cash on delivery, and they hadn't gotten their money. But Rothstein, having fronted $80,000 in bets, had no more to give. Eric Desenhall suggested this was part of Rothstein's schemes. Arnold Rothstein is essentially a Ponzi schemer. He never has any money. He's always making money, but it's always going out the back end of the door to something else, especially gambling. Arnold Rothstein does not have a lot of money on him. The money is always moving. And the biggest place it's moving to are gambling games where he himself is indebted. So the idea that he can get out of the game, he can't get out of the game because it's not like he has stocks and bonds and real estate that can really grow. He's always constantly moving things around in order to live. And so he never really has a lot of money. With money failing to appear, one player tried to convince his teammates that they were being played and they should try to catch up and get the World Series prize money. The ball players feeling cheated and thinking maybe they should win and collect the winner's share of the World Series, that they will finally double-cross the double-crossing gamblers. A starting pitcher in Game 8 is a guy named Claude Lefty Williams, and he's determined to play to win. The gamblers know they might try promising more cash to these guys to get them to throw this game or the next game, but they're very worried about it. So they try another time-tested gangster negotiating tool, which is not cash, but it's muscle, it's threats. At this point, if the White Sox won the series, Rothstein would lose everything. It was the night before game eight, and tensions were running high. Lefty Williams and his wife took a stroll outside to relax when they were approached by a mysterious figure. And the story goes that he is approached by a man in the derby smoking a cigar one night on the street and said, if you know what's good for yourself and you know what's good for Mrs. Williams, you will lose that game and you will lose it very, very early. And that is exactly what happens to Claude Williams and the White Sox the next day. And the fix goes into the history books. The White Sox lost game eight and the series. Rothstein made millions and pulled off the biggest sporting fix in American history. 
but far from avoiding suspicion, the wagers had drawn unwanted attention. There were too many people involved. The bettors, the messengers, the players themselves. And so the secret got out. Someone had talked, and the United States government got involved. When offers are made to come forward and say, look, if this thing is fixed, uh, here's $20,000, tell us how. Now, this is an insincere offer from the White Sox to cover the tracks of this, this scandal which could destroy baseball. But people do start to talk. And once someone talks to a paper in Philadelphia and then other people will come in, uh, there's a grand jury investigation of an unrelated matter in baseball. And people start talking. People start providing confessions to district attorneys and to newspapers. The whole thing starts to unravel and the fingers start to point to Arnold Rothstein. What does Rothstein do? He makes sure that confessions disappear through his attorney. Rothstein's attorney, William Fallon, told the gambler to take a simple approach, denial. And what he will do is paint himself as the victim. He will deny everything. Although if you look at the stories he gives to the press afterwards, minutes afterwards, they are wildly contradictory about what he was doing, who he talked to, what fix was going on. Fallon also put Rothstein on the defensive. He spent much of the trial claiming these accusations were ruining his reputation. When in truth, it was giving him credibility for a very different kind of reputation. Um, he pulls every string he can. And then, at Fallon's urging, he goes to Chicago and makes the big stink about how he is the victim, how the press is persecuting him, how people all these many, many years have just denigrated him and destroyed and impugned his pure reputation. And he's just sick of it. Oh, woe is me. And this seems to work. The grand jury does not indict him. Now, perhaps other things were in play. Maybe this was, again, just for PR, because it is known that some of these grand jurors later on were beneficiaries of Arnold Rothstein when they visited New York. They were put up in hotels. They got show tickets and baseball tickets and all that. So some money probably crossed hands directly, and it was a really masterful job of fixing the grand jury and fixing the trial which resulted probably more so than fixing the World Series itself. We hear a lot about how new inventions are making the world a worse place. Things like cell phones, social media. But this kind of resistance has been around ever since there were things to invent. Did you know the British resisted the umbrella in the 1600s because it seemed, quote, anti-British to shy away from the rain? There's a new podcast that will tell you that story and more. Pessimists Archive is a new show hosted by Jason Pfeiffer about why people resist new things. 
Each episode will look at a moment that something new was introduced that is now considered commonplace. Records, bikes, even coffee, and why it freaked people out. For example, many governments thought coffee would lead to revolution, and so they banned the drink. And doctors warned that reading novels would make women infertile. Pessimists' archive proves that history repeats itself, and people will always have something bad to say about new technologies. But change isn't as scary as it seems. Check out Pessimists' Archive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite shows. With odds of the case once again rigged, Rothstein walked free, and he now had impressed connections in low places as well as high. But I think that whether or not Rothstein actually fixed the World Series is less important than the fact that a bunch of later generation gangsters think he fixed it. It was a turning point for Rothstein, and he wasted no time in recruiting the low lives that now looked up to him. And when America was declared dry, he saw a lucrative new business venture. Disorganized gangs of Italian-American and Jewish-American gangs were quick to move in and sell diluted booze to whoever would pay. But Rothstein was a big-picture thinker. If he could organize these thugs and sell alcohol on a national scale, they could all make serious money. Selwyn Rapp. Now... Rothstein's major claim to fame was simply this. He was the first gangster to recognize the importance and the business and the money that could be made through bootlegging. He organized the first idea of how you would run bootlegging as a business venture, that you didn't have to rely on thuggish street crimes, and that uh, nobody realized how to organize bootlegging rings. And that there was, you know, there was a great demand out there when Prohibition started. There was a great demand in America to slake that thirst. And he knew how to do it. So what he did, in effect, was say, look, you've got to figure out how you're going to manufacture booze and beer. You've got to figure out how you're going to distribute it. You've got to find a market. You have to market it. And you have to safeguard your supply. You have to become executives. You have to run an organization. So he turned these raw mobsters into business executives. Mob mobsters who use their brains, not just their brawn. Aside from his organizational mindset, a lot of other things set Rothstein apart from the other wannabe bootleggers. First, Rothstein was an opportunist. He would work with anyone who was willing to work. What he did was, he had a lot of people, he didn't have one specific gang. What he did was, in different projects, different operations, he used different people, whoever was valuable or he thought could fit in. Now, when it came to prohibition, the mobsters didn't, the gangsters in those times were mainly street thugs. What they did was, they prayed, Jewish gangsters prayed on Jewish neighborhoods, Irish and Irish neighborhoods, Italians and Italian neighborhoods. A lot of it was just robberies, extortion from shopkeepers. Rothstein saw that prohibition was big bucks. And what he did was you had to turn people from thugs 
into mob executives. You had to learn how to, one, manufacture booze and beer, two, how to deliver it, three, how to market it, and four, how to safeguard your supply because they were rivals. Bootleggers were <laughs> hijacking each other's quantities. And Rothstein was not interested in selling cheap booze on street corners to just anyone. Used to rubbing shoulders with the elite, Rothstein knew the real money was in selling expensive Scottish whiskey to the rich. He had class. Arnold Rothstein's gambling house in Saratoga and Long Beach, Long Island, were very high-class operations. He decided that that was the way to make money in bootlegging. You bring the good stuff over from Scotland, over from England, you sell it to the best people, you do not adulterate it, you establish a reputation as the go-to guys for good stuff. And in that way, in that way, you will be protected profit-wise and you can be protected if things go wrong and your clients your clients get ensnared in violating the 18th Amendment to the Constitution because they are society people and they will be let alone by the district attorney and the federal authorities. Rothstein wants to make money from the rich and also he wants to feel to be the equal of the rich and maybe in the back of his mind the superior person to the rich. Selling to the rich gave Rothstein money and status and leverage. And he wanted to keep it that way. So he paid off not only the gangsters he had hired, but the government workers as well. So working for his insurance company will be the son of the Attorney General of the United States of America. He will have relatives and in-laws later on on his payroll who are involved with the federal drug enforcement officers, the direct relatives and in-laws of the head of that department in Washington. He knows what buttons to push. Lana Guggenheim. He had a lot of connections in the baking industry. He had a lot of connections with politicians. He was extremely influential with Tammany Hall, a major political organization. Rothstein also handpicked the cream of the underworld, he took a small team of young gangsters under his wing. He showed the smart young heavy hitters that if they want to be successful, crime had to run like a business. Rothstein is the mentor of an entire wave of the gangsters of the future. The guys we know as the classic gangsters of all time. Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, Lucky Luciano, Dutch Schultz, Frank Costello, Frank Erickson, you name them, Arnold Rothstein had something to do with them in the 1920s. One protege was Charles Lucky Luciano, who would later go on to lead the five families of New York. Another was Meyer Lansky, the future mob accountant. And he also took a gamble on a violent young man named Dutch Schultz. I mean, Arnold Rothstein was not a particularly violent guy. Dutch Schultz was. So when Arnold Rothstein needed something violent done, he went to somebody like Dutch Schultz. 
Using the skills and values that Rothstein would teach them, the new generation of gangsters would change the face of the mob and turn it into the organized mafia. He knew how to act like an entrepreneur. And his biggest gift to them was that when you organize, you got to forget about being thuggish gangs. You have to be brainy and smart. And also, as secret as, secrecy, as, secret as possible. So he taught Luciano and some other future Hall of Famers in Organized Crimes Hall of Fame how to function, how to operate, how to be slick and not violent, just violent alone. Rothstein knew you could not succeed in American crime by being violent alone. He considered those people misfits, that sooner or later they would be, they would be undone and that the way to succeed and die in your own bed, if you could, was by being organized and smart and slick. Remember, Arnold Rothstein, despite what many people think, did not have a mob of hundreds of people. What he had were a bunch of different deals that were going on and off at any given time. So he let all these little mice run where they wanted to run and do his bidding and that's where, that's where these guys got their start. While the bootlegging operation ran under the leadership of his new gang, Rothstein took a healthy cut of the profits. And using his protégés to do the dirty work, Rothstein could now rake in the cash with impunity. Rothstein doesn't want to be associated with violence. He's not unwilling to do it, but he doesn't particularly love it because he thinks it's kind of a lowbrow thing. He thinks it's animalistic. And the way he justifies it in his own mind is that he personally doesn't commit acts of violence. He has other people do it. His criminal empire was growing. But despite Rothstein's own distance from violence, violence inherently came along with crime, especially with one of his protégés in particular. Meyer Lansky and his business partner, Jimmy Alo, singled out Dutch Schultz as a uniquely bad guy. It's interesting that in the world of bad guys, there was actually a spectrum, and Schultz was viewed as the baddest of the bad. And Luciano and Lansky saw themselves as progressors. They saw Dutch Schultz as what would be called in Yiddish, a vildechaya, an animal. And Dutch Schultz was someone they wanted very much to get away from. And bootlegging was not the only criminal endeavor with its share of violence, as Rothstein would find out when his gambling debts came due. In the next episode, Rothstein walked the line between the low-life mob and the prominent elite, getting involved in as many ventures as he deemed profitable. He had to take out a life insurance policy naming him as beneficiary in case something happened to them. You know, they were dangerous businesses, these guys. And in case something happened to them, he would collect on their insurance. If they couldn't pay their debt, he would collect on their insurance. Shrewd business deal. And he made a lot of money until the ventures collapsed and his protégés decided to go out on their own. Rothstein's judgment uh, appears to be deteriorating rather badly in the 1920s. 
he is making bad investments, hanging around with worse and worse and more dangerous people. Sometimes there's a downside to having protégés, and one of the protégés who is particularly troublesome to Arnold Rothstein is a guy named Arthur Flegenheimer, better known as Dutch Schultz. Rothstein would risk it all on one last gamble, and the ante would be his life. So what happens is he doesn't want to pay. He doesn't want to pay. He has these chits out, $320,000. That's big bucks back then, several million today equivalent. So he decides uh, he's going to delay it, stall it. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for World Media Rights. We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabengwa and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Lightstream, Audible, and Pessimist's Archive for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.